snuggle up by the fire and listen to a ghost story. Don't pay any heed to the howling wind outside or to the creaks in the floorboards. Don't let the footsteps in the attic or the shadows cast by a flickering candle trouble you. Strange shapes are crawling out of the dark. Something ominous is knocking at your door. Chains are rattling in the cellar. Quiet. The ghosts of Christmas are gathering. It is time for the Midnight Carols. Chapter 4 The Christmas Feast Part 1 Silently, the vast expanse of the night unfurled before me. The dark shape of my uncle's mansion beckoned to me in the distance, its colossal outline bloating out to the stars. Not that such notions occurred to me at the time. You have to be in the proper frame of mind to see things as they are. And my thoughts were focused on something else ever since I had left home. I doubt anything would have happened differently had I picked up on the small, ominous details. The black lacquered Landau carriage and its unseen driver waiting for me at the station. The silent ride through the deep woods. Even the jagged silhouette of my uncle's mansion with its ruined spires and cyclopean walls should have alerted me to the fact that something was wrong. I was only thirteen years old, and although I was more astute and observant than most of my peers, I knew precious little about evil. I had spent the better part of the ride mulling over the events of the past few weeks. My mother was taken ill in November. For a while she did her best to hide her affliction, putting on a brave face despite the quick deterioration of her condition. By December we had to bring her to the hospital. Christmas had always been my favourite holiday. Each year our home would be filled with bright lights, coloured tinsels and all kinds of decorations. It was a time filled with wonder and love, a time for family and togetherness. We would sing carols, buy presents for each other and count our blessings. Of all the joys of the season, putting up a Christmas tree was what I enjoyed the most. For as long as I could remember, we would choose it from the nearby woods. Then my father would cut it and bring it home, where we would spend hours decorating it with ornaments of all shapes and sizes. That year, we did nothing of the sort. Of course, from her hospital bed, Mum insisted that we decorate the house and celebrated Christmas as usual, but neither of us was in the right frame of mind. Although my father kept his perky countenance in my presence, I suspected him to be stricken with excruciating grief, just as I was myself. Our lives were revolving around the hospital and its legions of white-clothed inhabitants. Home became as cold and lonesome as a winter night. And so it was until the last few days before Christmas. My mother, who had been in and out of consciousness throughout the week, scolded my father for having slacked off on his family duties. Tears flowed, apologies were offered, and promises were made. It was deemed that a change of scenery would be most beneficial to my well-being, and decided that I would spend Christmas with my uncle. I had never been close to my uncle. 
In fact, I barely ever met him, and on the rare occasions he was mentioned in a conversation, my mother would quickly change the subject. All I knew was that he lived in a remote mansion and that he was, by all accounts, incredibly wealthy. I pressed my father for more details as I was packing for my trip, but found that he only knew little more than I did. My mother, he explained, had always been secretive about her side of the family. She wanted to make her own way in the world without relying on her family's wealth, she had told him some time after they met, and since then she had almost entirely cut off ties with them, including her brother. It didn't prevent him to send a yearly invitation for Christmas. As I collected bits and pieces of information, I began fashioning a mental image of my uncle as an eccentric, albeit affable, old bachelor. A curious blend of excitement and apprehension swept over me as I walked towards the massive doors of the main building. I wished I had stayed with my parents instead of visiting some unknown relative. From the crumbled ruins of outbuildings leaning against its moss-covered walls of grey stone, I guessed the mansion to have been a place of some importance in the past. Its many towers and spires gave it a dignified, almost menacing aspect, probably a former monastery or some other place of worship. I peered at the windows for a glimmer of light or any sign of life. After about a minute, I heard a series of clicks coming from the lock and the door opened. I found myself face to face with a rotund woman, wearing a long black dress and a simple cap. She was holding a candle to light the way. Without a word, she ushered me past the vestibule and into an expensive foyer. Ah, oh, you must be Edith. I'm Rosie, your uncle's housekeeper. Come with me. I'll show you to your rooms. Where is my uncle? I'm afraid Mr. Sturges is indisposed tonight. Don't worry, my dear. You'll meet him tomorrow. Promise me you'll uh, keep in mind that your uncle is an older gentleman, unaccustomed to the company of youth. <laughs> I don't want to speak ill of my employer. He's a kind and generous man, but sometimes his manners can be difficult. She seemed satisfied with a simple nod on my part and proceeded to lead me up the stairs. The flickering candle cast grotesque shadows on the walls of bare stone caught a glimpse of moth-ridden tapestries and stern portraits peering at me through gold-gilded frames. The building was obviously very old, and it must have been grandiose once. I sensed, more than saw, the shadowy void of the foyer next to me, and imagined how the main hall would look with a brightly lit chandelier. I'll show you around tomorrow. It's nicer in the daylight, you'll see. My bedroom was at the end of a long, carpeted corridor, adorned on both sides with dark draperies. It was more comfortable than I had imagined. A gentle heat was radiating from a ceramic wood-burning stove in the corner. There was a large four-poster bed with thick velvet curtains of emerald green. Furniture and other amenities were similarly plush and elegant. The high walls and panelled ceiling were bedizened with golden arabesques gleaming in the candlelight. The housekeeper gave a little bow and prepared to leave. Rosie, can I ask you something? Of course, love, but I'm not sure I'll have an answer for you. Are there... are there any ghosts in this house? I knew as soon as I had spoken that it was a silly notion, but as I remembered the vast emptiness of the main hall, the dark seemed to press on 
all around me. <laughs> no ghost here, love. Believe me, I should know. I've been here a good while and I've never seen a thing out of order. <sighs> Make yourself cosy. Tuck in and go to sleep now. I took off my clothes and slipped into the bed. The mansion was alive with a thousand noises. Old age and decay could explain some of them. The creaks and groans of floorboards, the faint dribble of leaking pipes. Others I took to be usual sounds in the middle of the woods. Owls hooting, winds howling, tiny feet scuttering away between the walls. Even if Rosie's warm and friendly manners had helped to appease my uneasiness, I still struggled to ward off a vague sense of dread. Maybe, I thought, it was the memory of the mansion's former glory and grandeur that made it appear so lonesome. Forlorn, even. After breakfast, I knocked on the door of Uncle Sturgis's study. I had expected a frail old man with shaggy white hair and reedy voice. His thunderous reply was already a surprise. Come in. The study was somewhat smaller than my bedroom. Its walls were covered with leather-bound books and shelves upon shelves of strange paraphernalia. However, my uncle's piercing gaze and impatient demeanour precluded any further inspection. The man sitting in the comfy chair by the fire was nothing like I had imagined. He was a beast of a man, tall and broad-shouldered, with a surprisingly youthful face and long, wavy hair. His dark coat lined with fur and his silky black ascot made him look like an old-fashioned dandy. Well, well, what do we have here? If it isn't my niece, tell me, how was your trip? Do you like your room? We chatted for a while, exchanging small talk and carefully avoiding the topic of my mother's illness. The conversation was pleasant enough. My uncle had a knack for putting people at ease despite his intimidating appearance, and I quickly forgot his questionable reputation. He informed me that my cousins, young William and his baby sister Martha, would be joining us later that day. I thought you didn't have any children. I realised too late that I had overstepped the bounds of polite conversation. A hint of annoyance crossed his face, but quickly disappeared. Indeed, I don't have any child of my own. These are your Aunt Delilah's children. I gather that your mother never mentioned Delilah. Well, I shouldn't be surprised. It's a pity that she couldn't come to our little gathering tomorrow evening. She would have loved to meet you, my darling. Not to worry, there'll be other guests to entertain you. Family and friends, distant relations, all kinds of fascinating people. The mention of the Christmas party caused a surge of excitement. All my worries seemed far away, and for the first time since the beginning of my mother's illness, I was looking forward to Christmas. What better place to celebrate than a proper castle? Yet, something had been bugging me since I arrived. An odd feeling, as if something were missing or out of place. The answer, I realised, was as obvious as it was disconcerting. 
the mansion was completely devoid of any kind of Christmas decorations. Uncle, when are we going to put up some decorations? Please, I'd really love to help with the tree. What tree? <laughs> Christmas tree, of course. Rosie showed me around the house, but I didn't see any Christmas tree. I assume we're going to decorate it together. Maybe we could wait for William and Martha. I think not. I'm not about to allow anything of the sort in my house. I'm surprised, not to mention disappointed, that a bright young lady such as yourself adheres to superstitious nonsense. Christmas? Why should we celebrate the birth of a beggar and worship a witless infant? Belief and faith are imperfections of the mind. Reason, logic, power, knowledge, science. Why should we worship anything else? And if you need a religion, please pick something with more substance than Christianity. I should go mad should I take the Bible seriously. But to take it seriously, one must be already mad. The only sin which is unpardonable is willfully to reject truth and knowledge. I shall not indulge your delusions, nor keep you amused with old wives' tales. Never did we celebrate anything as pedestrian and ridiculous as Christmas in this house. Nor shall we ever do so while I'm alive. While my uncle was speaking, I had unconsciously backed away, inch by inch, until I found myself cowering against the door. Fighting back the tears, I slammed the door behind me and ran to my room. All my grief came back upon me, a tidal wave engulfing me. My mother's illness and impending death, my father's haunted eyes when he thought I wasn't watching Christmas without my family. I burrowed my head in the pillow and cried. My cousin's arrival pulled me out of my sorrow. I didn't leave my room to meet them, but I heard Rosie leading them through the stairs and the corridors. The baby cried all the way to the nursery. As for the boy, William, he stomped up and down the stairs, running and laughing. It was an unfortunate turn of events that the nursery should be located in the attic, just above my head. The ruckus continued as they settled down and intensified after Rosie's departure. More stomping, more shrill crying, more thunder and laughter. Pieces of furniture were dragged across the floor. Glass shattered, war cries echoed in the venerable mansion to the beating of a toy drum. It was worse than the barbarian hordes swarming Rome. As hard as it was to believe, I missed the little unsettling noises that lived within the walls. At that moment, I would have traded the young hoodlum and his screeching sister for a thousand ghosts. I considered asking them to keep quiet, but I assumed it would only bring about more chaos. My annoyance receded when I remembered that Christmas Eve was almost upon us. If ever there was a time to tolerate children laughing and playing, it was Christmas. Although I still hoped that they would take their games outside, I couldn't help but to feel a hint of satisfaction at the thought of Uncle Sturges having to deal with all this racket. And if their happiness couldn't be contained, why should my own Christmas spirit be bridled? 
So what if my uncle was an utter, unadulterated wet blanket? He could be the Grinch incarnate or the ghost of Ebenezer Scrooge for all that mattered. Why should I let his views dull my spirits and wear me down? I wasn't beholden to him in any way. I decided to make my own Christmas. From that moment on, I spent most of my time roaming the house and its surroundings, in search of anything that could be turned into a Christmas ornament. I rummaged into every drawer, examined each wardrobe and broom closet, looked behind the curtains and under the carpets, picking up anything that seemed worth scavenging. It turned out that even rubbish could be turned into something beautiful with a little ingenuity. By nightfall, I had cobbled together a series of trinkets and baubles, sprigs and twigs, berries and paper ornaments, which I arranged in a triangular shape on the wall. The result was a peculiar, albeit abstract, kind of Christmas tree. For some reason beyond the powers of my understanding, my tree seemed to have banished the creeping shadows and eerie noises from my room. Even my cousins were quiet. That night, I fell asleep humming Christmas carols and wishing for snow. On the morning of Christmas Eve, Uncle Sturgis summoned me to his study once again. This time, the door was wide open, and my uncle was having a browse through his library. Uh, you wanted to see me? Indeed, my dear. I believe I may have been a little harsh yesterday. I was unfair to you and spoke out of irritation. I should not blame on the child the iniquities of the father, or of the mother, as it happens. So intense was my desire to teach you that I forgot the wisdom of Lucretius. Nam voluti porus absinthia tatra medentescum dare conatur. I'm sorry, Uncle, I don't understand Latin. You'll have to pardon me, my dear. Old habits die hard. I was a teacher for most of my life. Classics, you see. I held a Regius professorship in Latin. What I meant to say is that the artful physician uses honey to entice children into taking their medicine. Like Lucretius, I must proceed to set free minds from the tight knots of superstitions. If you knew more about Christmas, I think you'd understand my reaction. Will you indulge an old professor? I nodded, knowing full well that there was nothing he could say that would convince me that Christmas wasn't worth celebrating. Very good. Let's see how much you know about Christmas. Where does it come from, in your opinion? <laughs> Duh! It's a Christian holiday commemorating the birth of Jesus. Everybody knows that. <laughs> Wrong. A common misconception. People reveled and caroused at the end of 
December, long before the birth of the so-called saviour. It was the Roman Emperor Constantine who picked the date of Christmas in the third century. And believe me, it had little to do with baby Jesus. The Romans celebrated the birth of Sol Invictus, the unconquered son, on the same date. There were also darker, more secret reasons to choose this date. Centuries before the Romans, Zarathustra taught his disciples that the great god Mithra was born on this same day. There were great feasts and bloody slaughters on the winter solstice when the God of Israel wasn't even a rumor and older, more ferocious powers roamed in the dark under the stars. He had spoken with a degree of intensity and conviction that suffered neither objection nor question. I even detected a hint of longing while he was talking about the Romans. He had a kind of wistful expression on his face, that of sadness tinged with unfulfilled desires. I opened and closed my mouth, exhaling slowly. Something shifted, and my uncle's attitude changed. His stare was making me uncomfortable. By the way he twitched his mouth and pursed his lips, I guessed he was about to confide in me or to reveal a great secret, but... It was my cousin William, a paper crown on his head and a blow tickler in his mouth. Before long, my uncle was roaring with laughter and chasing the young boy around the room. You should get ready for tonight's party. I believe Rosie has prepared more suitable clothes for you to wear this evening. In the meantime, I shall take care of this (laughs) young rapscallion. And so their game resumed. Back in my room, I found the garments my uncle had designated waiting for me on the bed. These consisted of a long, flowing tunic of purple wool with a mantle of dark silk, which was to be worn as a bit of drapery hanging between the shoulders. At least, that was what I assumed after a cursory investigation. Even though the loose tunic was somewhat too revealing for my taste, I enjoyed the feel of the fabric on my skin. Above my head, the stomping and screaming resumed. I supposed that the young boy was back in the nursery and had decided to tease his baby sister. I was beginning to change my mind about Uncle Sturges. Of course, it wouldn't be the Christmas I had hoped for, and I was still bitterly disappointed about the lack of Christmas tree. But I promised myself I would try to get over the old man's eccentricities. A fancy dress party wouldn't be such a bad way to spend Christmas after all. I spent the better part of the afternoon mulling over what Uncle Sturges had said about Christmas and its pagan origins. Rather than an internal turmoil or a sense of betrayal, I felt the need to examine my beliefs, maybe adjust some of them in the light of things. I remembered going through a similar process concerning the existence of Santa Claus.
inside my room, young William was making more noise than I ever thought was possible, banging on his drum and blowing in some sort of flute. Driven by a nagging suspicion, I glanced outside, hoping to give the young rascal a good talking to. The corridor was empty. The commotion seemed to come from the foyer. As I paid more attention to it, the tune changed, its measure slowing down to a slow, sonorous beat. I could distinguish muffled exclamations and cadenced clapping. It was altogether alien and slightly unsettling. Above the monotonous drone of the music, a potent voice swelled, fraught with lasciviousness and unseemly implications. The party had begun without me. Chapter 4, The Christmas Feast, Part 1, featured Elizabeth Plant as Edith and Rosie, Kristen Holland as Uncle Sturgis, and Peter Coates as the announcer. Sound designed by Jamie Stoffer from JLS Audio. Additional music by Lee David Cobley from Ataraxia Alpha. For otherworldly meditative soundscapes, check out Lee's Bandcamp and YouTube channel, Ataraxia Alpha. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to tune in next week for part two.